and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's a new film podcast from the team behind The Skinny magazine. I should probably stop saying it's new because it's been six months. <laughs> um, it's me, Peter Simpson, with Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Anahi Barrows. Hi. And if we sound a bit crisper and cleaner than usual, it's because we've got a new gaffe. Um, we are at Upload Studios down in Leith, who have been very nice and helped us out with a podcast space. It's great. There's lots of acoustic baffles and bits of equipment. It's not like the good old days when you would just have leads falling out the back of things and the suspicious door. I truly cannot begin to describe how much nicer it is. <laughs> like, it is wild. There aren't any mysterious vents. Now we can't blame the bad equipment for the podcast being rubbish, so we have to like- up Was that what we were doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was blaming. <laughs> it's all, it all the rubbish makes, not me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, thanks to Upload Studios for having us. Um, we'll give them another shout out and give you all like the URL and how to get in touch with them if you want to use their lovely space for yourself uh, at the end of the podcast. Um, but today, uh, in what we said to Josh from Upload as we walked in the door, is an ideal thing to do for your first uh, <laughs> episode around new people, is uh, we're going to be talking all about sex and sexuality in film. Party. <laughs> cool, cool bunch of guys just hanging out. Um, so we're going to be talking through uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis biopic. We're going to be talking about Emma Thompson's new film, Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. We are going to be talking about Pleasure, the new movie film by Ninja Thyberg. And we're also going to be just talking more generally about sex in cinema, how it is portrayed, when it is done good, when it is done not good. This is one of those times where we're like actively participating in the Twitter discourse. Yes. Which I don't know if that... Like, yeah, if that's a good idea. <laughs> We've got microphone arms. We're doing discourse. We went away. It's a whole on, we, new podcast. We went baby. away on holiday, and now we're back. Um, but in classic Cine Skinny fashion, we'll talk a bit about what we've all been watching for the last wee while. Uh, Jamie, do you want to go first? What have you been watching recently? Well, after last week uh, disparaging TV, I'm now going to make up for that because I'm going to talk about a really good TV show that I've been watching called The Staircase, which just I just finished uh, last week. Um, this is Antonio Campos' adaptation of that documentary, The Staircase, I don't know if you remember that, um, which followed the kind of arrest, trial and release of Michael Peterson, who was this kind of novelist and kind of wannabe politician who was accused of murdering his wife. Like his wife, Kathleen, basically was found bloodied and crumpled at the bottom of the staircase. And there was, he claimed it was an accident, even though it looked very suspicious. Anyway, the show's amazing because it kind of deconstructs the true crime documentary. This is kind of like the kind of original uh, true crime documentary, basically. And so it kind of, yeah, it's a, only, it features a trial, but what it does, it uses all the trial's evidence to kind of like, uh, basically kind of reenact all Kathleen's possible deaths and make everyone like absolutely believable. So it gets to the point where you actually don't know what to believe. It's like, it's not it's not a kind of the show where you're, you're going away thinking, oh yeah, Michael did it. It's like the kind of show where you go away with a million more questions. Uh, and at the same time, it includes the kind of making of this French documentary. And it shows how the documentary is also super flawed, you know? So like the documentary process, the editing process is just as flawed as the judicial process and that you can make any scene mm. mean anything. Um, it's really smartly done. Antonio Campos, is a director I really love. Uh, he brings a lot of style here. It's really engrossing. What he does with time is really good, interesting because it's set over like 20 years from the initial uh, accident, if you want to call it that. There was uh, air quotes there <laughs> uh, for, for people who... Uh, yeah, air quotes, famously great thing to do on the yeah. podcast. 
<laughs> yeah, from the accident allegedly um, to the, to his kind of getting released. And what what he does is he cuts back and forth um, between all the the times in between, and he can, it all kind of speaks to each other. It's all really interesting and fascinating. Uh, the cast is amazing. Colin Firth plays Michael. Tony Collette plays Kathleen. Michael Schuberg, uh, Stolberg, sorry, is the, is Michael's lawyer. Uh, the kids are played by Sophie Turner, Dan DeHaan, Patrick uh, Schwarzenegger. Parker Posey's in it as like the DA's lawyer. Oh, Julie yeah, Binoche appears, and you think, what's she in here for? She turns out she's the editor who falls in love with Michael. It's it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I really recommend. It. It's probably the best TV I've seen in years. So that's that- so interesting because it looked very like part of you know that I don't even know what the genre is but part of that genre that was what was that one with Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman oh yeah a very British no no a very English scandal but it wasn't that it was the other one or was it that one I don't know okay anyway do you know what I mean no <laughs> I started a thought but I don't actually have any of the facts like you know that kind of slew of like dramas that came out like post Big, Big Little Lies that all kind of weird like white people marriage type dramas well, it's kind of like that. I mean, that's what you get, but it's, but it's, real, like, well it's real. Okay. It's like, this is a real thing that happened. Right, and okay. it's like, so it's it's like, that's what's so fascinating about it. And it's like, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of icky because these people are still exist. The the guy, Michael Patterson, uh, not, not Michael Patterson, that's a friend of mine. <laughs> Michael Pearson. God, sorry, Michael, Michael, <laughs> Michael Patterson is not a murderer. Michael, and neither is Michael Pearson. We don't know that. We, the show doesn't <laughs> explain it. Anyway, Michael Pearson is like a narcissist and he has like he welcomed this documentary and he has like an interesting character and he's been like really angry about this show because he feels like it's not depicting him right and he thinks Colin Firth isn't funny enough or sexy enough to play him this is the type of guy is has he seen Colin Firth? I know exactly um so it's all it's a real person a real family and it's but I think it's a really good show because it doesn't uh make a judgment either way it's just laying out the facts and showing actually We'll never know because the lawyers don't know, they're all guesswork. The documentary filmmakers don't know, and we don't know. You know, it's like the only person who knows is Michael, mm-hmm. and he's so unreadable. He's like this kind of really interesting character who does lie. We know he lies a lot about, about a lot of things, but we don't know if he's lying about this. So, yeah, really fascinating. So, that's The Staircase. It's on Now TV, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, so it's on Now TV. Check it out. Uh, that's TV, though. Film, Anahu, what have you got for me? <laughs> I do have a film, Peter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I watched, uh, well, just like lots of stuff, but one that particularly stood out was All My Friends Hate Me, which is also actually like, I think it got released last week, so it still should be in like some cinemas. Um, and it's a kind of pseudo horror comedy drama, kind of feels a little bit in the style of Shiver Baby, and that it's like finding horror out of like, social situations, I suppose. And it's written by Tom Stoughton and Tom Palmer. And Tom Stoughton also stars in it as a man who reunites with his like university best friends for his birthday party. And they have the kind of friendship where they're all taking the piss out of each other all the time. Like when he first arrives, they kind of like just look at him and they're like oh we were joking about inviting you here like why would you think that like we were serious and then they like fully play that for like five minutes until like you know that kind of very particular like relationship that I think is in British culture about how people are with their friends and it was so fascinating because I watched this with um one of my best friends who's American and she had not a fucking clue what was going on the whole time like at the end of the film she was just like 
but why was she, why was he friends with them? Like they were so mean to each other. I was like, no, but that's how it is. <laughs> like that's how this stuff works. And it's like a really good deconstruction of that kind of cultural idea of banter, essentially, that I think is very British and is also very of like our generation, I think. Like kids that grew up in the noughties and that particular like naughty style of like comedy. Um, which yeah, I thought was really well done. Um and yeah, like felt very, I mean, my university friends and I, like, you know, I love them, we got on really well, uh, but one of them did once lock me in a coal shed, um, like as a joke. So like, I think that is just that kind of, yeah, like how this stuff works. Um, so yeah, I did really enjoy it. It's not as good as Shiver Baby. I think it's like a little bit more unfocused, but it does something I think quite interesting about like needling British culture that I thought was quite cool. So yeah, I think I was out in cinemas at the moment yeah i think it's um by the time this comes out it'll be down to fairly limited screenings but there will be some in edinburgh and glasgow certainly and yeah the very british thing of being like i like this person but british society does not allow me to tell them that i like yeah. them so i must hit them instead yeah yeah, yeah. it's with wild. my words or hands yep. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i'm gonna make them feel like no one actually wants them here, but secretly I do want them here. I just don't know how yeah. to show interest. How else would they know I want them here without me making it incredibly hostile <laughs> for them to be here? Um, what, what have you been watching, Peter? So I was away in Barcelona for a couple of weeks and thought I would have to get back in film mode for the podcast fairly soon. So after watching no films, I decided I'd try and watch many films at once, which led me to um, Mark Cousins's latest uh, kind of film essay documentary the story of film a new generation which is on netflix surprisingly um it kind of tells the story of innovation in cinema throughout the 21st century which i particularly appreciated i uh, like the fact it didn't just go for like these are good films he talked quite a bit about kind of innovative but slightly flawed films or like films that were not like by a quote-unquote objective measure the best just the ones that were the most interesting we're doing something a bit different um the scope of it's really impressive it's got a great focus on indian cinema and uh, south asian cinema uh mark cousins whole kind of setup with like video montage and voiceover reminds me of like a less conspiratorial and uh, adam curtis it's like watching someone who like it's just about the films it's not watching bits of uh film footage and then saying but really what was going on was thousands of miles away in a <laughs> bank office he's like these films are nice and they connect in these ways um it's about two hours 40 minutes ideal length for a plane trip um when you want to confuse the people sitting next to you at half past 11 at night it's like why is this man watching this incredibly long kaleidoscopic documentary but it's very very good um we should try and get mark on the podcast oh definitely and what i was gonna say is like some people start to think like they assume that Mark's taste will be super pretentious, but like you say, it starts with like comparing the Joker to Frozen. You know, so it's like it's de definitely doesn't. It treats all films. What I like is he's totally, he totally treats all films equally. They're all in the same. Whether it's a tiny documentary from Turkey or like a gangster movie from like India or a big Hollywood picture that won Oscars and like made huge box office he treats them all with the same amount of time the same amount of like dignity they all get the same amount of space and I, and he will use them to compare uh, put them on the, the same level basically to mm -hmm. talk which I think is really refreshing it's like something like as somebody who is like an editor I kind of always think about that, like oh shit should I be giving more space to these smaller films when 
but then maybe my audience wants to read about these bigger films. He just doesn't care about that. He just says, <laughs> these are the films that are interesting and did an things, and I'm going to talk about them, and I don't care if it's they're, they're fashionable or if they won awards or if they were at box office, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's cool. Yeah. So the story of film, A New Generation, is on Netflix just now. You should check it out if you've got a couple of hours to spare and just want, lo- if nothing else, just loads of films that you can then go and watch. Because honestly, like your watch list, will RIP your watch list after this, because there's like just dozens of things you might not have heard of that you'll be really interested in checking out. So that's what we've been watching generally. But now we're going to begin the slow ascent into discussing sex in cinema. But we'll start with something fairly mild, which is... A man who some considered to be sexy, whose life has been put on film. That is truly such a segue. What what do you mean mean some? Who doesn't think Elvis wasn't sexy? I mean... I mean, I'm not talking... Well, you you feel like it was controversial. He's like, Elvis is sexy, is he not? Yeah. Is that like a controversial thing to say? I don't think so. Some people consider him sexy. (laughs) Not me, though. Not me, a connoisseur. Anyway... Um, so Baz Luhrmann is back with a biopic of Elvis Presley um, in this one Elvis Presley is played by Austin Butler and the film entitled Elvis uh, tells the kind of story of Elvis Presley's life and career uh, the people he meets along the way and the ways that he goes from being a kind of small town boy to being a massive like one of the first rock stars and he you saw Elvis what did you think of it? <laughs> so I'm the only one of us, I think, that has seen Elvis. Um, yeah, so I have not really liked a Baz Luhrmann film since Romeo and Juliet, which is one of my favorite films. And then pretty much everything else he's made, I've been like, no, this is actually kind of ugly and weird. Um, so I really had very low expectations for this, like incredibly low. Um, but it's actually not bad which is like very surprising to me personally. I think I really, I think especially given like the subject matter and how easily that could slip into exploitation. I think music biopics are always like a bit of a like hit and miss thing because they can just be so, and it was such a long film as well. Like I just wasn't really sure how it was gonna work. But there's something that's actually surprisingly very tender about this film. even amidst like the kind of bagginess and it's overlong and it's very like biopic by numbers. Um, It's really, really anchored by, so yeah, I should say, it kind of starts kind of in his childhood and pretty much goes until his death. And it's kind of told through the narrative of his manager who is played in some sort of way uh, by Tom Hanks under 12 million layers of prosthetics. Like truly you have never seen a man look less human. Um, And he was like well known for his exploitation of Elvis through his career. And he's kind of looking back at his death and kind of retelling the story. So that's like the framing thing, but it pretty much does go from like childhood, like cradle to grave. Um, And it's really rooted by this incredible performance by Austin Butler, who like there was a lot of people making fun of Baz Luhrmann because he at one point was going to maybe cast Harry Styles and then he was like no Harry Styles was too well known everyone was like well what does that say about Austin Butler but it does actually really work to have someone that you probably haven't seen that much who is just so astonishingly vulnerable like he's so young when he first becomes famous and he really has this kind of 
very sweet, very wide-eyed thing. He's really doing it for his family. And I think the film does a very good job of showing like quite how unprepared he was for this world and for the way that everyone just wanted a piece of him. Um, it's definitely better as a film in its first half. It does, it says really, really interesting things about the ways in which iconography and image around famous people are created. And in particular thinking about like the political image of Elvis. So the ways that he was engaging with black culture at a time of like intense segregation. And the film shows that, yeah, like how the people kind of the institutions essentially were really threatened by this because they saw it as a threat to kind of white supremacy in America. Um, and he was like navigating that and was quite explicitly engaging with these things. Um, it's not always entirely successful. Obviously it is still using black culture to tell this like white man's story and love of black characters are often like a little bit sidelined, but it does definitely like go to these spaces and have these conversations. Um, some of the best scenes are the ways that women respond to him and this kind of depiction of female sexuality and frenzy that honestly feels almost like eyes wide shut sometimes. Like it's almost like an orgy, like they're just so, and I think that works really well with the type of filmmaking that Baz Luhrmann does because it's always very chaotic and it's always just slightly insane. And it feels like it finally has like a correlate in like the theme. Um, the bits that aren't good are really Tom Hanks. <laughs> so, so sorry to Tom Hanks. Um, Tom. I love Tom Hanks. I love him, but why? Like literally what? I, I don't understand any of the decision-making processes behind that. He's under so many prosthetics, I think. Was it you, Jamie, that was saying it was like a House of Gucci? Like, or was it you, Peter? Yeah, I think it I was, was it's a, uh, from what I'd seen from the trailer, it was um, Jared Leto in House of Gucci yeah. level transformation. Yeah, 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 which you just think like, what is the point? Is this just a problem? There's no like fat, average looking people anymore who act. Like, like where where are the kind of Ned Beaties of the world? Who like, yeah, yeah, who yeah. could do these roles, you know? Like, yeah. like why does he have to put like, movie stars and prosthetics to make them play these characters. Exactly, and especially a movie star that has like so little relevance as, like, you know, if you think of like some of Tom Hanks's recent roles, like him in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood was so interesting because it was playing on that nice guy thing to kind of not exactly subvert it, but to take it to its extreme and be like, what if him being nice actually is like an antagonistic thing for our project. Like that was a really interesting thing. But to take an actor who's never really done something like this, who physically, the way that he acts has like no real relevance to, I just don't understand the thought process beyond Baslam and wanting to put Tom Hanks on his poster. Um, and I think that is also something to be said about, yeah, the way that it's kind of told through his eyes. It does some really interesting things like framing the way often like Elvis will be framed in shot and it's him looking at him and like turning him into like an object essentially. And that feels quite interesting. But then the further you go on in the film, you're like, this man's just so awful. And you just feel so like mired in this exploitation. And I think a slightly different perspective would have maybe helped the film unpick itself from that a little bit. Um, so yeah, that whole character, I think stops it from being something that is like very solid and very good but there are like some really interesting parts to this and Austin Butler is great so yeah surprisingly not bad let down by Tom Hanks <laughs> apparently like because there's playing against type and then there's playing a character who you have no 
business playing. Business playing because yeah. you look, sound, and act completely different yeah, yeah, from yeah. that person. Yeah. Like, wh- I, why? Like, what was the point? Literally, what was the point? Baz Lorman, if you're listening, uh, skinny at theskinny.co.uk. <laughs> Put the word explanation in the subject line and we'll definitely get it. Um, so Elvis is out this Friday, as you're listening to this, 24th of June in cinemas everywhere. It's one of those big films we sometimes talk about where you literally won't be able to not see it. So if you can ignore Tom Hanks, you might <laughs> you might be all right. Um, another film that you might be able to catch this weekend uh, is Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. Is it Leo Grande or Leo Grand? I feel like they say Leo Grand in the film, but I say Leo Grande in my head. Okay. So it depends which one you want to go for. So good luck to you, Leo Grande. That's, <laughs> that's semi skinny canon now. Um, is a new film. It's kind of like a comedy drama, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, Emma Thompson plays Nancy, who is a retired widow looking for a bit of romance and excitement in her life after a kind of pretty stale marriage. So she hires Leo Grand slash Grande, who's played by Daryl McCormack, who I mainly recognise from Peaky Blinders. He plays one of the junior blinders uh, in Peaky Blinders. And, um, <laughs> is there a hierarchy? There is a hierarchy. Um, Do you have senior blinders? Yeah, there's a kind of striation of blinders. I see. So it's like S Club 7, S Club Junior. Yeah. <laughs> like Muppet Babies. We're getting off track. Um, so Nancy Emma Thompson hires Leo Grande, played by Daryl McCormack, who is a kind of handsome young sex worker. And she He is know. so handsome. Sorry. I just I don't but like he's so handsome. I feel that is relevant to the plot. Yes. That we really need to emphasize. Like just so handsome. It felt hysterical. This is anyway. a capital H, capital G <sighs> hot guy. Yeah. Um and so then they kind of embark on something of a back and forth. I haven't seen this one. Jamie, what did you think? Well, interestingly, this is written by Katie Brand, who's been kicking around like the UK comedy scene for ages. And I just wonder maybe if this was initially wrote with the ambition of being like a fringe show or something because it doesn't mm. feel like it was written for, for cinema. It's very talky. It's set in one location, this kind of bland hotel room. Um, there are only three characters, but most of the time there's only two characters. Um, and it's just a little bit stilted as if there's almost like gaps where the audience is meant to laugh or something. It's that kind of, it's, it's almost got a kind of sitcom feel, especially in the first sort of half, I would say. Um... So I don't think it really works as a film, but I kind of did enjoy it. Like if this was on TV or something, I would definitely watch. Mostly for the performances. I think Emma Thompson is just fantastic. Um, she begins this film as this kind of frumpy, uptight, neurotic RE teacher who's wearing this kind of terrible dress and she's just kind of... But she just kind of loosens up over the film. You know, she changes before her eyes as she begins to experience things in the bedroom she's never felt before. And you don't really see... Emma Thompson play this type of character before. She's usually the coolest, funniest, most confident person in the room. But here she is, like, really vulnerable. And I've, yeah, I've never seen her do this before. And, but, yeah, she was really good. Um, she's not a particularly nice person. Um, and no. the film isn't afraid to show that these characters are flawed and prickly. And Thompson's character in particular is just kind of pretty disrespectful to this young lad. Um, but it becomes like a kind of... Less than a film about sex. It's almost like a kind of... Um, like a therapy session. That's that's how, especially the first half feels. It feels like Leo is like working, like uh, Nancy through a lot of demons, and at the same time, she's also helping him. Um, yeah, uh, but maybe I'll, I'll move on to like I need to speak for a bit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 
No, I agree. It's like a difficult film to know what to think about. Um, I think I felt almost like the opposite for, for me that I thought the first half was so strong. And I completely agree. It was very theatrical, but that kind of worked for me. Like it was kind of theatrical, but it also had like a bit of the trappings of like um, the old like sex comedies, like Pillow Talk and like that sort of Doris Day, Rock Hudson-y vibe. Um, and yeah, it's very stagey, but I really liked how their kind of constant movement towards sex, like each time they would take off clothes or each time they would kind of agree to a new like act it was like punctuated by these conversations around aging and sexuality and sex work um and it really was yeah like you say almost like a therapy session but it's like these people just trying to figure themselves out and figure each other out and emma thompson is so good and it is so important i think to be talking about how within our cultural imagination like female sexuality the age that you are quote unquote sexually viable is actually so little of your life and that we just don't really see women beyond a certain age as having like a sex life as having desires and I think reorienting that within cinema is really important Darren McCormack aside from being incredibly dreamy is so good and actually the way that he plays his dreaminess is so much like a part of that and that he's so smooth he's acting like the part of the female fantasy but then there are moments where she'll like go to the bathroom and you just see him and like this kind of hesitation on his face and this like he's trying to figure something about his own life out and it's just like really vulnerable and really like oh it's just really nice um I think for me the problem with this film is it is kind of set up a little bit like a rom-com kind of like these sex comedies but fundamentally and sort of what the film is also edging towards is that sex work is not a relationship like it just that is not what it is um, and there's something that happens around halfway through this film that I don't want to spoil, but it kind of shifts the dynamic a little bit. And like you say, she's not super nice. And I think it's important to have that sort of flawed thing. But I think that very much shifted the ground for me. And so then when the film kind of reverted back to a bit of this sort of like more comedy, romantic comedy like thing between them, it just felt off. Like I felt very like, oh, I actually don't really think this is okay. Um, and I think it would have been nice maybe if I had lent a little bit more into that sort of like ambiguity and ambivalence. And I think that's something, so the director Sophie Hyde did a very, very good film a few years ago called Animals. And that is just like a weird, complex, slightly fucked up film. Um, and I kind of wish there had been a little bit more of that, like maybe letting like loose ends remain loose ends. Um, Cause the way they tied it up, I was like, mm, not actually sure that's, all right, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, well, I like I say, I like I liked it when it sort of got messier because I felt like the first half we are watching two characters. Mm. We're, we're watching two people playing characters, basically, because mm. you got Leo is playing a character. He's playing yeah. this kind of make-believe perfect guy. But Nancy's also a bit of a character because yeah. she's she's also like she's this teacher and she is like almost, almost like condescending to him constantly she mm. picks up that he said the word empirical and she's like makes some remark about it you know she treats him she patronizes him you know mm. like she might patronize a student and it's like a, and it's only when they both like sort of release who they are a bit that mm. i felt that the, the the movie came alive because i feel like actually leo's much more interesting character yes, I, I felt I like i would the because he stays in character the longest mm. You don't really sort of get to know him much, and I kind of wish you, you knew more about him. It's much more Nancy's film, 
which is fine because Emma Thompson obviously is amazing. She's a mm. star. I just didn't buy that character quite as much. I felt like if, if anything, she's a bit more cliched. You've seen mm. that kind of frumpy um, housewife who sort of uh, sort of reawakens. It's like you know, it's like what's that uh, Julie Walters film from the eighties? I, I forgot its name now. Um, you know, educating Risa. Uh, no, the one where she goes to the Greek islands. Um, and anyway, uh, Shelley Valentine. You know okay. th that kind of character, that kind of mm. uh, which has done been done before, and it's kind of that. It's very British as well. Like, the film is like so uptight about sex, and I feel like if a German <laughs> person or a French person watched this, they'd think, "What are you talking about?" Like, mm. like you know, like we were just talking. I was just talking to Julie Benoist there. Like, like in French culture, for example, women aren't considered don't have such a shelf life you know like yeah, yeah. like you know Isabel Huppert, Julie Binoche they're still super sexy and consider and you know Bridget Bardot in her 1670s you know they're still kind of icons and it's it's a very British thing this kind of idea maybe maybe also you could add in America this idea of like a woman aging out of her sexuality but also the idea that like people would be in a loveless marriage for so long and be happy with it you know like that kind of idea is a certain very British thing and I thought the film was going to do that British very British thing of just talking about sex but never actually showing it mm -hmm. um and the good thing is it it, it does it actually that's what was refreshing about it it actually it's it's it seemed like it was going to be coy every time they, they got intimate it could fade to black and we'd see the next scene like a week mm -hmm. later but I will say that towards the end it did deliver and it did sort of make Emma Thompson a sexual being and I thought it was going to yeah it, it, it had to do that because you can't just say this woman's sexy you also must let her have sex and yeah. be on screen and be sexy for sure um, and, and I think it is the physicality of her performance in a way that feels so like paradigm shifting in that like yeah there's this one it's not even with him but she like fully just like looks at herself naked in a mirror um, and that feels really important and I think a lot of like the ways that she comes to terms with her sexuality are often like through herself which I think is also good and I agree with you that like yeah when it loosens up it becomes more interesting but I guess my thing is it then stops loosening up and I didn't like that kind of shift back round I think once you've done that you have to stay with it and not like make it sort of nice and tidy by the end um but yeah it's definitely very interesting it is like you say bananas that it even feels like a, a like a new thing you know, like how is it 2022 and this is maybe one of the first films that feels like it's doing something along those lines um, in the UK. Well, I would say first British film, yeah. Like first I say, British I, film. Like I think yeah, yeah, European yeah, films. Yeah, and, no, yeah. but yeah, like in the UK, like it is bananas. Um, but I think, yeah, it is like that aging thing and then I think it's also the sex work thing. And I think bringing those two things into conversation and thinking about what are some of the taboos that we still hold around sex that we shouldn't. Um, and these two people coming at it, having lived their lives through very polar opposite taboos of sexuality that nevertheless kind of collide. I think that is a really interesting setup. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting film. Like I would, mm. I would check it out. Uh, I would say it's not a great piece of cinema, but just like well written, mm. well performed, worth watching yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So good luck to you, Leo Grande is in cinemas just now, so it will still be on by the time you hear this podcast. Uh, one other thing I was going to say is Daryl McCormack played Isaiah Jesus in uh, Peaky Blinders, the son of Benjamin Zephaniah's character. So Benjamin but, Zephaniah is in Peaky Blinders. Yeah, he plays. What like, is the show? Yeah, I, I I tapped out of Peaky Blinders long before he appears. So. The first two series are very good. The rest of it, it turns into grown up Bugsy Malone. But anyway, <laughs> uh, good, good luck to you, Leo Grande is in cinemas now. And then moving on from coy British 
reflections on sex to a film which you could not describe in any way as coy. Or British. Or British. <laughs> um, so Pleasure, which is the debut film by Swedish director Nina Tyborg. It uh, stars Sofia Coppola as Bella Cherry. So Bella arrives at the start of the film in LA from Sweden, eager to kind of make her career in the adult film industry. She moves into a house with a bunch of fellow kind of newcomers to the industry, gets a few gigs and is soon like fully immersed in the kind of machinations of the world of porn. Uh, so Tyberg, this is our first feature, but she made a short version of Pleasure, which came out in like 2013. And she's basically been researching the adult film industry for years and years and years as a filmmaker and also I think a bit as an academic. Uh, most of the cast of this film are either adult performers themselves or they are actively involved in the industry. Uh, Ninja Tyberg, in the course of making the film, lived in one of these like model houses with some of the women who are involved in the industry who like work as porn performers just while she was doing her research to like really get in on the ground floor and it has that quite documentary feel at times and mm -hmm. he yeah <laughs> yes <Peter>. segue <laughs> um yeah um and i think that i know a lot of the press material and a lot of the talk about this film has been that it is very a lot of confrontational and quite like surprisingly graphic imagery but often presented i think in a way that's not necessarily come across in a lot of the pr material often presented in quite a matter of fact way uh, so a lot of very graphic stuff but presented in this almost kind of like documentary way in its story beats it's kind of like a workplace drama it's also reminded me as i was going through it of like a sports movie mm. um you know kind of like an any given sunday or something like that because it's about like the kind of physical and emotional toll that doing something like this uh takes on you um it's about your kind of co-workers and how they're also out to kind of help themselves but you might come across some who want to help you um it's about this kind of like relentless drive to be the best at the thing that you're doing it's just that in the case of pleasure the thing that you're doing is porn performance um and the only other thing i want to say before i pass on to someone else is that it's a film that if nothing else shows that uncaring industrial production of anything is bad and yeah. that is also true of like pornography and adult entertainment because the film never makes out that choosing to do this kind of work is bad but it does constantly point out that it's the kind of industrial production processes and the power dynamics behind the production of this kind of of adult content that's what's bad mm. with like a notable exception that we'll maybe get onto in a bit but it kind of it basically doesn't shy away from the fact that coercion and exploitation and abuse and kind of like lack of empowerment for the people who let's be honest this whole industry wouldn't exist without like there would be no adult industry if it wasn't for women working in it yeah. if it was just a bunch of guys standing around with their cameras with their cameras that would like that's not anything um that's for, not anything. <laughs> for what for what for what they're trying to do so i think that yeah there's i think that it does a really good job of kind of hitting on that sort of like mundane brutality of this kind of industrial production of something like adult entertainment. But uh, maybe 
Anahu, I'll come to you first. <laughs> what did you think? Oh my God, thank you. Um, yeah, I actually kind of loved this. I thought it was really well done. I think often when we talk about like sex in cinema and like, yeah, that whole like discourse, it's like, what is sex in cinema for? What is it doing? What is, what is its function? Um, and people, I think, talk about this as like quite a provocative film, but I actually don't think the sex in this is for provocation. I think it's a film that's doing something very clever in that it's talking about like exploitation and the mechanisms behind creating exploitative gazes through the object of that gaze. Um, so, so much of this film is seen literally through her eyes and you have these like really, really explicit sex scenes and everything's just slightly at a weird angle or there are these scenes where like it'll just be the sky as she's looking out of the window and it very much puts us like in her position who is usually the person both within kind of films about this and also within the adult films themselves who is being looked at all the time and here she gets to kind of look and she's navigating that and I think that is so interesting um it asks them very uncomfortable but I think very important questions about like both about the porn industry and also about like our sexual culture in general um, so like a lot of, so her big thing is she just wants to be the best. And I think that's also like very wrapped up in kind of ideas of like, you know, capitalist production. Um, there's this kind of like bit of a joke when they're like, why did you get into this? And she's like, oh yeah, like, you know, I had an abusive dad and they're like, no, really. And she's like, no, I just want to be here. Like, I just want to do this. I want to be great at it. Um, and so she's constantly pushing herself to do like more and more, um, like rougher things, like things that involve like quite like quote unquote extreme kinks all of this stuff and kind of the film is asking like how much of sexual fantasy is inherently based in female humiliation um and what are the ways that we can kind of navigate that while like encompassing people's kinks but at the same time not making sure those aren't used to exploit someone else how much of our kinks are still rooted in like very fucked up ideas of taboo so there's like a whole conversation in the film about how like interracial porn is still like this big like niche and it's where you can which is like oh I know I just think it's such a gross idea like that's just based in such like really awful ideas of who is allowed intimacy and with whom um and the thing that I think I found the most disturbing about this film is in every one of the sets as she's kind of because there is this sense that is both very professional and very unprofessional. There's a sense that they're all like, they know exactly what they're doing and there's like a procedure for this stuff. But it's very like she turns up and she kind of immediately pretty much can like take off her clothes and go into makeup and get on with it, right? Um, and there are these constant conversations around consent. They're like, you know, like as soon as you don't feel comfortable, like you let us know. Like as soon as anything needs to happen, like, you know, these are the safe words or you don't have to go through with it. And if ever she says she feels uncomfortable, their response is, of course, of course, you don't need to go through with it. We are like almost finished though. And you're like such a strong girl. So if you just, and just the way that like consent culture can be like manipulated and there is this ostensible duty of care that um, the director shows kind of exists, but actually does nothing because the industry actually, like you were saying, isn't interested in duty of care. It's interested in how much can we shoot in one day? And so I think, yeah, the way that it kind of pulls back stuff on these kind of ideas, both like, yeah, it is very much within porn, but I think it just has so much relevance to how we think about sex 
generally. Um, yeah, I just thought it was really good. Yeah. I I mean, what I loved about it is how unjudgmental it is, mm. actually. I mean, you can come to it, everyone will come to their own conclusion. And I think it actually, when I say it's unjudgmental, I think the last sort of 30 seconds kind of annoyed me. Um, but we'll get onto that. But like, I loved how you'd be hard pressed to actually even tell what Nina Thiver thought about the porn industry, I think, because the way she shoots this is like, a, like Peter says, like a documentary workplace, like, you know, it's like, it's like Frederick Wiseman or something, I think. Um, and she shows, yeah, there is misogyny. It's, but what's interesting, she shows lots of different types of sets. So yeah, there's certainly sets that are dangerous, that are misogynists who are behind the camera. But she also shows actually, I think there are some sets where it's very supportive and that people are kind behind the camera. And there's, there's, there's one um, shoot which is directed by a woman and it's much more artistic. It's like a kind of fetish mm. scene, I guess. Um, but that was the one where I felt like actually this character's not in danger. Like I don't think Emily's gonna exploit her here. It, it was much more about her her pleasure, her safety. Um, and it's much more about art. It wasn't really about sex at all. Um, and the other scenes, I, I felt like it, it didn't really judge the performers. A lot of the performers actually were very supportive. Like, like uh, especially the, the other women who she lives with in this, um, uh, what's it called? Like in, in a kind of like bungalow where, where like four women stay, this model home. Um, so in a way I thought it was super refreshing how it didn't seem to have an angle. Um, and I think what we're seeing is, is probably what she observed. Like I, like I think that that was interesting. Where I think the film sort of fails is that the main character is a kind of void. Like, like she's not really a character. The whole film is like basically a kind of star is born sort of showgirls. Like any of that kind of rise and fall on Juno goes to Hollywood, tries to make it, um, you know, kind of pushes anyone out of the way to to get what she wants. That's It's a, it's a story we've seen a million times. So the, the film is actually really predictable in that way. Um, and you saw, I see, I saw every beat that was coming. Uh, and actually every scene, you can probably guess what's going to happen because it's like, it's all kind of telegraphed. Um, and I felt the main character, I, I would love to have known why she wanted to do this. And I, I don't need like a big backstory. I don't need that tragic story that she had an abusive mm. family and that's why she's joined the porn industry. But I just felt there was nothing behind her eyes. Like she was like vacant. And I don't know if that's the point. Maybe it is saying that to do porn, you have to be a bit soulless and you have to sort of give yourself in. But I just felt that main character was, was yeah, I, I don't know. I just felt there was, I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you what, what she liked, what she disliked. I felt all the other characters around her were much richer. Like her friend Joy, for example, who's this girl who she becomes friend with. She's another uh, um, porn actor. Um, she is like much, you know, she's very upfront about what she wants to do. She's like, uh, and what she doesn't want to do. She's, she's not as ambitious. Um, she just wants to kind of have fun. And yeah, she seems like a much more interesting character to follow. Like the other other people we meet, like there's also, um, uh, sort of black guy she meets right at the start he turns out he's a, a porn actor as well she thought he was just driving her around but he's actually an actor and he's really interesting he's complicit in this racism you're talking about this kind of um this industry where he's treated like some sort of exotic object and he feels terrible about it but he's sort of stuck in this industry so he's a much more interesting car character i think i just thought the main character was sort of a void and sort of just a vessel for this story which is like a boilerplate story that i've seen a million times um, so the filmmaking is great. Like I think it's really interesting the way that they show this, these graphic scenes, but they never feel sexy. They never feel, um, you know, it's sh like you say, it's shot from these weird angles to make mm -hmm. everything look, yeah, as matter of fact as possible. Um, but yeah, I just felt like if this main character had a bit more to her, 
Um, and like I said, the final 30 seconds, I don't want to spoil the film, but I just feel like it, the film is like a total cop-out then, the, the way it ends, you know? It's like it's, it sort of loses all its honesty and all its authenticity that it, was, that, that it had for most of the film and it's gonna last sort of sort of minute or so. I think it's really interesting that you say it's like not made with an angle. Cause I feel you're right. I feel she is unjudgmental about porn. Like she's not kind of framing porn itself as like a morality issue, which I think is often in the conversation. But to me, it really was like an indictment of the porn industry as it exists currently. Um, and there are just so many like so many horrifying scenes where like women's, like the um, adult actresses sort of boundaries and consent and like their ability to actually really say no um, is entirely undermined because of this just like, yeah, emphasis on production. I think, yeah, Peter's absolutely right. It just feels like another capitalist industry. And I think it's less that she's being like, porn is like this because porn is like, you know, an inherently immoral blah, blah blah but she's saying no it's like an exploitive industry like a lot of other industries are exploitative but it did feel like that was what she was but I feel she, I feel she was documented I don't think she's saying anything that's what I liked about it. there was no sort of uh you know the camera doesn't change she she documents the nice set like I said the, the, mm. like there is a set which I think is a warm uh supportive set like well, like I say directed by this woman uh, porn director and it's like, it's much more kind of an arts fetish you know, it's not, you, we wouldn't even call it porn. Um, she shoots it in exactly the same way as the other other sets, and that's what I'm saying. It's not judgmental in the way she shoots the camera. Obviously, she puts the story together, um, but I, I kind of feel like she's just saying this is how it is, um, and you make up your own mind. You know, you, you could argue that the the main character is complicit in all the stuff she does. She really wants to do these things because she wants to be at the top, and I just feel like if they told us why she wanted to do it as much, or if we knew more about her. It would make sense um, a bit more, you know, because 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 her friend Joy, like, does not put up with this behavior. She leaves the set when she's when when um, one of the actors is being a misogynist and calling her a trailer trash, you know. Um, but isn't that just how like ambition within capitalism works? Oh no, totally. Like, that is that's what I'm saying. Like, but uh, so I mean, I'm not saying it's completely unjudgmental and mm. there's no angle. But what I'm saying is that uh, the the director doesn't tip their hat. It's for you to decide. Mm. It's not using the camera to, you know, it doesn't shoot like the, the bad set in some sort of dangerous angle. No, it's or, not like or, very sensationalist yeah, or anything. No. Yeah. And I think it's that it's partly why when we first got started talking about it, it's this idea of being sort of pulled in. I think that the Bella character gets drawn into the industry more than the work mm. in the end. And that's kind of what comes to be it's not even portrayed as her like undoing it's that there is a change in the character as a result of the way that the industrial elements of the work that she's doing as th as that influences how she you know relates to other people and how she relates to herself and to the work and all this kind of stuff um and i think that having her friend joy who is played by Ravika and Roysel, who is, is really, really good as this kind of like counterpoint who sort of shows that she's a character who doesn't take any shit and that means that she'll never make it in this town because, and then the subtext is because the people who run this town don't want to have to deal with people who actually, like you were saying, Annie, there's the whole thing of like, 
while you can, you know, we're very interested in making sure that everyone is happy on set up until the point that we can't have a set. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They're happy for people yeah. to give their, you know, to be engaged in what they're doing up to a point. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is like, repeated over and over again in the way like you say jim the kind of like very documentary like matter of fact way this is presented that it's the industrial side of this and that's kind of in a weird way what reminds me of something like an any given sunday where it's like it's the thing of it's about getting the thing done and if that means people like from the perspective of the people who are ultimately making all the money and getting all the kind of power out of this if that means some people get damaged along the way they can be replaced they can be you know repaired whatever Mm. and like that i think is the thing that and it kind of i think it goes along with what you were saying as well jimmy that actually you don't need to explicitly say that for that to still come across yeah because like that is clear through the actual text of the film that like this is not like the way that this is currently working isn't working Mm -hmm. and by showing an example of what it could be like if there was more active consent and people didn't feel like they were being put in dangerous positions then you could you know a lot of these a lot of the negative things that happen in the film are the direct result of people choosing to do those things rather than take a hit on their bottom line or like move away from the processes of the industry that they work in Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the things that's most interesting about it. And one of the reasons that like it being so explicit in its content is so effective is it just means that you then like it focuses the mind. Let's put it that way. Mm. When you're seeing things on the screen that you don't normally see on the screen, it makes you kind of like focus in and then you realize oh well, actually like Maybe it maybe this isn't just about the porn. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah. still like this real emphasis on bodies. Yeah. I think. Which is very important. Like not kind of thinking about it in this sort of abstracted way, but being yeah. like, no, that is kind of like it is selling sex and that's okay, but that is something that we need to actually show and think about and think about how that's like depicted. Um and I really like that. I think it's very important not to kind of abstractify sex work into you know like these kind of like it's labor and it involves like particular like mechanisms and things and yeah i thought it was really good how she did that yeah pleasure is on movie just now it's also got some kind of limited cinema screenings at places like gft and the film house exactly the kind of places you'd think would put a film like this on <laughs> um but yeah it's streaming on movie just now pleasure i would recommend it check it out um so having talked about pleasure leo grande and elvis to a certain extent um <laughs> probably worth wrapping it all up kind of tying it all together with a bit of a chat about the kind of general discourse discussion around kind of sex in cinema um, and how it is portrayed and how it's kind of changed over the years. I think a good instructive thing for everyone to read, pause this podcast and go and read uh, R.S. Benedict's Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny essay 
which I think Anne has referenced on the podcast at least yes. once already. <laughs> um, it basically talks a lot about how modern, especially like blockbuster cinema, is basically just full of hot buff folk who have no interest in each other whatsoever about how there's a kind of like sterility and sameness to a lot of modern mainstream cinema and how this kind of ties into people's neuroses around like modern life and stuff like that. It's very, very good. Everyone should read it. I'll put it in the show notes. That is a good kind of primer and probably a good um, both forward primer and backwards explainer for the conversation that we're about to have. So <laughs> so what a good place to position this. I would, yeah, <laughs> solid. Um, but I don't know who put this in the notes talking about how there's kind of roughly two camps in the discourse around sex in cinema. That was Jamie. That was Jamie. Jamie does all the notes. Uh, well, that was me. I think, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, those, well, I'll say the two, two camps first and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. I feel that this Twitter discourse basically falls into two um, arguments. Some people think sex in cinema is unnecessary and boring. And I can sort of sympathise with that. Like sex scenes do kind of stop action. And there is an argument. Lots of filmmakers have said they don't have sex scenes in their films because they are basically stop action. Um, but then there's another argument that sex especially in modern cinema, has become completely desexualized. So, like, if you compare, like, a Hollywood movie from the 80s to, like, a Hollywood movie made last year, even choosing stuff to Top Gun as an example, like, you know, if you if you compare 1986 Top Gun to um, 2022 Top Gun, there's a lot more sex, you know? Like, uh, there's, the sex scenes are... Like obviously they are ridiculous in the nineteen eighty six, but but there's a uh, and, and and then they're much more it's much more sort of tame. Like that weird scene where he like hovers on top of that. I know it's, it's like it's like it's hilarious. How are they having sex? I'm um, sorry. So what? So what? So I guess maybe what has changed? Like why is sex now not in? Is it because we're trying to, uh, like Hollywood is trying to open up to a wider audience? You know, we we don't want sort of to block off the fact make we're making every film a family film. Uh, you know, there's, there's countless reasons. Are we more prudish? Is it the fact we have the internet now and we have we porn? We are more prudish. I think that is actually genuinely a very big part of it. Because, um, yeah, I think those two camps do definitely exist, but I think there are also people that kind of think about sex in cinemas inherently like an exploitative thing and like a thing that is engaging with power, um, which it is, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah, I don't know why... I think it is something to do with yeah that like things are more family friendly but I think it's just generally to do with like a sanitization of what it means to be human and sex is a really big part of that and I think yeah that argument about like stopping action I can kind of see that but also sex sometimes can be the action like if you think about even um what do you call it basic instinct that we talked about in the Verhoeven um, episode the sex scenes in that are what makes the film like they are very much encompassing like a particular like power dynamic ideas of desire who is on top who is manipulating whom who is made vulnerable to whom like these are absolutely part of the film and without it the film would not make sense like it just wouldn't work um and i think we've become less interested in that kind of yeah, like you were saying, like that essay says, like people are just fuck. <laughs> it's just missing from our culture because I think it's been very reified into like these very like popular, all-encompassing romantic comedies. The erotic thriller has completely fallen off a fucking cliff. Um, and there just isn't enough of it. Like I think also like how we think about attractiveness has also like amplified a lot. How do we allow 
actors and actresses to age. Like I think all of this, like we're just like increasingly sanitizing and making our the like cinema more fantastic and less of like a reflection in real life. Um, and yeah, I just think things like sex and violence and those things that get talked about as if they're like, you know, gratuitous, not gratuitous. They definitely can be gratuitous and they are 100% about power. But sometimes the film is trying to talk about power. And so then that is something that you actually, that becomes like a vehicle and a tool for talking about those things. Um, There's just so many filmmakers that wouldn't be able to do what they're doing without people shagging. I just think we should have more of it. Yeah. And there's also the thing as well, that, like I think that the Marvel stuff and the kind of like MCU superheroization of things is like a good place to look at it because actually like a lot of those films don't necessarily feel like they're about interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. They're about big kind of grand, almost like kind of pretend modernist ideas of like there's a big, ba- there's literally a big baddie and we have to go and fight the big baddie using our like magic hat or whatever like this isn't about like two characters who meet and then their relationship grows to the point where they have like feelings and desires towards each other like so many characters especially in a kind of franchise heavy film landscape characters come fully formed already and it's like yeah um you know hawkeye can't get it because that's not in the hawkeye character (laughs) bible like it's like you don't. You, like, that's basically what Hawkeye's it is. Hawkeye's married, Peter. Well, <laughs> ostensibly he's getting it on a regular basis. <laughs> but like, you, but you don't. You see what I mean? Though? <laughs> yeah. That like they they'll be like, oh well, this character doesn't do doesn't do that kind of thing. They yeah. just do gratuitous violence and a bit of occasional swearing if we can fit it in. Yeah, yeah. Like, and banter. Yeah, if we can get the three in under the PG thirteen like certificate. But then you see that, and then think of like Tim Burton's Batman films. Like they were full of sex, you know. Yeah. Like like like. If you compare the like uh, like Batman and Catwoman, pretty much get it on, in Batman Batman Returns. There's no suggestion that ever going to do it in the new Batman. You know, the sort of there is a what sub- that was a very sexy film. What are you talking but about? But but they're not. <laughs> but they don't get together. They they don't get intimate, do they? They have like one kiss. Yeah, it's you know? a very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I I just think there is there is something's happened. I don't know what it is. Like yeah. uh, I feel like audiences are, yeah. But but strangely, there's more sex on screen ever. If you go to foreign cinema, um, mm. uh, we would, I'm just talking really in Hollywood. Like if you yeah. go to, yeah. if you watch French cinema, um, you know Japanese cinema, there's sex everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> sex everywhere. Well, there's <laughs> the every, tagline. Yeah. International cinema. Again, it's something about British and to the extension sort of American culture that mainstream cinema has given up on sex. But yeah. if if you go outside the mainstream, there's plenty of it. And I think it is just, yeah, how particularly like British and American and this kind of, I think, yeah, like white Western, although like a lot of Europe obviously is that as well. But I think so much of it does feel about how do we imagine people as sexual beings? And like we talked about this a little bit, actually, I think with the worst person in the world discussion of like who is allowed to be desirable. And the problem with like Hollywood and I think the ways that is aligned with people trying to sell stuff, I think also is a lot of the problem is that like actors very often are like doubling as like models and like the face of a studio, the face of a franchise, like it really is so much about image. And so then it is like, well, who is allowed to be desirable? And what are the very, very narrow parameters in which we decide desirability? Um, And even like thinking about Top Gun. Yeah, the first one has like 
more sex. It's weird sex, but it's there. Um, but I think it's really interesting to think about like why was Jennifer Connelly cast in the new Top Gun instead of and I've forgotten her name. Karen McGillis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Why was she cast? And there were like interviews with Karen McGillis, weren't there, where she was like, they wouldn't want me anymore. I yeah. don't look like that. I'm now age appropriate yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise isn't. So. Yeah. 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 So I think that is also like a really big part of it. Um that we just aren't very good at being like everyone is well not everyone, but like, you know, people everyone can have access to that sexual part of themselves if that is something that like, you know, they feel or whatever but and it's not just based on are you the hottest person in this room yeah. are you in like the top one percentile are you an iron man are you an iron man um, right down genius is actually really sexy <laughs> I will. we'll add that uh, so i think to kind of wrap everything up we're each going to talk a little bit about a film they're mostly let's be honest from the 90s and early 2000s <laughs> Uh, about films that explore sex in cinema in an interesting way. And I think, Jamie, you talking about how uh, the new tagline for uh, non-English language cinema should be sex everywhere. Uh, you want to talk about a Mexican yep. film, Itu uh, Mama Tambien. Yeah, I mean, I think actually if you think about it, like all the most sensual filmmakers are, you know, foreign. It's like Amodovar or Claire Denis or, I mean... I would say foreign, obviously. Jean Campion, I would put in that class, but obviously she's not Western. Well, don't, don't know how you want to class uh, New Zealand, but anyway, it, it's like she, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> say she has geopolitics. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Wong Kar Wai. You know, like I, I feel like foreign cinema. I don't know. It's just like less uptight. Um, Quaron's an interesting one. I wouldn't see he's a central filmmaker just because he makes so many types of films. He's a bit of a journeyman. He can make any type of film. And then back in two thousand and two. He made a teen sex comedy, um, e, tambien, uh, e to Mama Tambian. Um, now, calling E to, to Mama Tambian a sex comedy is a bit reductive because it's doing a lot more than that. But that is its basic premise. It's about two immature teen guys who convince this kind of older, very attractive woman to go on a road trip with them and sort of sexual shenanigans ensue. But what's interesting about the film is it doesn't just show one kind of sex. I think talking about Hollywood movies, they tend to depict sex in this kind of really kind of sex, sex uh, soft focus, woozy, um, but not entirely like real sex. You know, it's all kind of blue lighting and light coming through Venetian blinds or kind of montage. She's against kind of cheesy pop musics. Um, but what uh, what this film does, it, it gives you all the awkwardness of sex, the embarrassment of sex. You know, we the first sex scenes we see are between these kind of teenagers who are having sex with their girlfriends and it's like rubbish sex it's like it's over in five seconds they're like awkward um then you get these kind of very homoerotic scenes between the boys where they're kind of jerking off on pools and sort of like horse playing in like showers and stuff and then obviously you get this older woman who sort of basically takes these two boys under uh, her wing and sort of sort of tries to like you know yeah, so it's, it's, what I'm saying is it gives you a whole range of sexual experiences, you know, so from the kind of very immature, um, like kids, like not quite knowing how to have sex, to this older woman who sort of shepherds them, and then it ends with this kind of amazing threesome. Um, and it's just like, yeah, it's just a very adult um, look at sex, and, and it's all its kind of very different uh, guises. But also, it's, it's a really, you know, it's not just a sex comedy, also, it's a film that's about sort of class and it's about what's happening in Mexico. And very often, it's basically saying outside of your kind of horny little mind, if you're these kind of teenagers, there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's like how these, these boys actually realize that 
outside of their own sort of sexual needs. There's stuff happening all around them uh, in Mexico, and it's all about class and you know, like uh, so it's, it's a really interesting film. Um, and and you know, it's but it's also a really fun, sexy film as well. Um, and yeah, I, I love it. And uh, yeah, Quaron sort of gets that sex is messy and fun. And that's something that Hollywood doesn't really show very often. That it is kind of messy, fun, and awkward. Yeah. Um, it's always it's always very sexy and professional and aesthetic looking, um, but they they don't really get the bodily bodiness of it, you know, which which he does. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to find out if you can. Do you know if you can stream Itu Mamatamia anywhere? Uh, I'm not too sure. I'll just look up. I will let you look that up while Anahi <laughs> talks about um, what we kind of. Briefly mentioned it before. Uh, Jane Campion, New Zealand filmmaker. Maybe Western. Maybe not Western. Well, I mean, can say she has she has like Western. You know, in- yeah. <laughs> leaving that aside, uh, which of which of Jane Campion was it in the cut? It is in the cut. So, um, for context, I have been listening to a lot of Brett Goldstein's podcast, Films to Be Buried With, and he has like this section where like he's interviewing people and he asks what the sexiest film they've seen is. And there's a subcategory which is called troubling boners, worrying wide-ons. And it's the films that you find sexy that you probably shouldn't. And it was like making me think a lot about, yeah, like what are the ambivalent ways in which sex is portrayed? And for me, it really is uh, Jane Campion's In the Cut. She is anyway a director that deals so much with yearning and like wanting and desiring. And obviously we all know I fucking love Power of the Dog and that does that so well. But In the Cut is her most like explicitly erotic thriller. Um, and like the best erotic thrillers of the 80s, 90s, it is very horny and also horribly unsexy at the same time. It is about a um, like English professor called Franny, uh, who's played really against type by Meg Ryan. Um, and this film, I should say, came out in 2003, I believe. Um, and there are these murders of women that are happening in the background in New York. Um, and one happens, she maybe like stumbles across one that is about to happen and then the girl that she sees becomes one of the girls that gets murdered. And the police get involved and among the police is Mark Ruffalo's very looming, kind of brutish, misogynist, racist, but also, you know, like a fucking porn mustache, like just very threatening and very sexy. and there's this kind of way that they get involved and it's all just like really uncomfortable. It's very much a film that's bound up in the ways that female heterosexual desire is tied to violence. So this idea that you are desiring both in a context of violence and also who you are desiring may be the source of violence. So throughout the film, she's not sure if Mark Ruffalo is actually the man that has been doing the murders or not. And she has some evidence that maybe he is, but also maybe he isn't, but also she really wants him. And everything in this film is so uncomfortable. Like there's this, these garish colors, that horrible, just like naughties aesthetic and sharpness of everything. Kind of New York is portrayed in this very like grimy, trauma soaked way. It's very much a post 9-11 film. I think it was the first film that had um, permission to shoot in Manhattan after 9-11 happened. And you can really just feel that sort of heaviness in the city. Um, And yeah, it's just very, she's very good at filming bodies. Um, A lot of like close-ups of like hand and flesh and like hard-ons and it's just very kind of quite similar to pleasure. Um, The explicitness and the lack of romance or intimacy feels very, very deliberate. 
And yeah, like there's a kind of this female gaze to the way that she shoots, which again feels quite similar to pleasure. But there's also a kind of male gaze in the way that all of the bodies are fragmented and it kind of mirrors the way that these murders are happening, which is these women that have been like dismembered. And so it's like these bodies being caught up both in violence and pleasure at the same time, which is very often the experience of female desire. Um, it's very uncomfortable, but the sex, thinking about, well, what can sex do? The sex in this film is so important. Um, there's one scene where she sees someone giving someone else a blowjob, and then there are like two scenes, I think, where she's having sex with Mark Ruffalo. And we need to be in that space of like explicitness with her. We need to feel that sense of like sheer vulnerability to intimacy and danger that she experiences. And it's just so good and it was so misunderstood at the time and I think actually even the first time I watched it I was like this is just like really grim and what is this and I think kind of slowly coming to like understand it is like yeah the grimness is the point and the way that like sex is bound up with something that is just very violent and awful and feels very threatening um yeah it's it's just very good it's very good it's um I don't think you can stream Itu Mama Tambien at the moment in the UK, and I don't think you can stream in the cut. You might okay, be able so to we've picked well, you some can great rent films. it on Amazon Prime. Yes, so you, and also on BFI Player, right? And think. the BFI Player. So that's how you can watch that. Um, I just briefly wanted to highlight. So we were having this conversation, and I was kind of thinking about like what film might fit this, and then the one that kept coming back to mind was Secretary. 2002, yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader, which this is a weird aside, but when he turned up in the American office, I couldn't remember what he, I remembered him from. And then when I remembered that it was, he's the kind of sadist lawyer from Secretary, I was like, whoa, no, <laughs> steady on. That's why he's got a bit of a odd vibe to him. But Secretary is Maggie Gyllenhaal gets a job as a legal secretary for James Spader and their kind of professional relationship turns into a kind of sub-dom BDSM relationship. I first saw this when I was but a young boy, probably in my 20s. Um, but that was a long time ago now, so there's no need to laugh. Um, <laughs> and it came to mind when we were talking about this because I think it's like it's quite interesting in the context particularly of pleasure because Secretary portrays this kind of like sexual relationship as a thing that you might do. It doesn't say like this is bad, doesn't say this is wrong, doesn't even really say like this is good. It just explores why people would choose this kind of relationship and what it is about it that works for them. And it does all this in the context of what's basically like a comedy. Mm -hmm. So it's quite an interesting film to look at in terms of like portraying kind of more niche side of people's like sexual desires in a way that isn't judgmental and that just kind of gives you enough to work with to like to see like what it is that's motivating the characters i think unlike something like a 50 shades films that kind of purport to talk a lot about like bdsm type relationships i think secretary is good because it kind of explains and explores the idea that this is like a mutually this is a mutual relationship it yeah. only really works if both parties are actually getting something out of it and i think that is like that in a way is quite an interesting and kind of like transgresses a lot of the norms in films around how like sex and sexuality is portrayed because it's often portrayed through the kind of idea that like someone is pursuing someone someone is desiring someone but from afar 
or in the case of Batman, a bush. Um, <laughs> whereas, like, I think that, yeah, something, films that kind of, like, look at different ways that people even approach the idea of sex in the first place are always going to be interesting and worth looking at, provided that they do it in a kind of, like, I don't want to say responsible, but, like, a fair way, yeah. I think. I think it's very easy. It's one of the things about, I think, sex in cinema is that it's one of the the big kind of dramatic things in films that most of the audience are closest to in terms of what's likely to happen to them they're not going to get in a fight with iron man they're probably not going to be in like on a hijacked plane that's full of snakes but they may well end up in like a sexual relationship and that is partly maybe why people are a bit more like about it because Mm. it hits closer to home than some than like other what people would deem like extreme subject matter it's just closer to it's uncomfortably close to what they know in their real life yeah and that could be a reason why people don't want to confront it in film but then it's also been turned into something that is not at all like what sex is in real life no and so it's kind of both yeah you're right it's that proximity to something that might happen to you but also doesn't feel at all reflected yes it's portrayed in a entirely unrealistic yes. way yeah, yeah yeah and that is and yeah i agree i think that's something that secretary does really well in that actually a lot of it isn't really necessarily it is about the sex but it is also about like them and the relationship and how the sex like forms part of generally the ways that they are interested in each other and sort of nervous around each other and learning new, like it's part of who they are as people as opposed to like this thing that happens yeah and then they just go off and do other legal stuff. Yeah, like yeah. it's all bound, bound together. <laughs> Another good film we could have talked about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, maybe we have to save that one for next time. <laughs> but um, I think we are gonna wrap it up for today. So thank you, Jamie. Just Peter. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to Lewis for taking notes. Thanks to the folk at Upload Studios for having us. If you have liked the sound of this podcast and want to also do a podcast at Upload, uh, go to uploadstudios.co.uk. They are in Leith. The space is lovely. This chair has been very comfy. This is like a proper microphone that's attached to an arm and everything. I'm having a lovely time. It's very exciting. Um, We will be back in two weeks' time with the next episode, The Cine Skinny. Uh, we, I'm not entirely sure what it's going to be about. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, no, no, idea. no thoughts so far, but we might go off and work out what it's going to be and get back to you um if you want to follow what we're up to in the meantime on twitter you can get jamie on jamie dunn esquire you can get anna heat on anna heat ruse you can get me on peter simpson all one word no vowels follow the skinny at the skinny mag and if you want to send us an electronic mail uh <laughs> skinny at the skinny.co.uk but yeah thanks for listening and we will see you all in two weeks bye, bye. bye.